You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, if the last year has taught us anything about our jobs, it's that macroeconomic forces can certainly influence them. But the question is, what can they do to your work? To know the answer to that, you'd have to have a good definition of work. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of our definitions for work have fallen well short of our aspirations for the amount of time we give uh, to it. Things like, well, it's what you have to do uh, when you can't do what you want to do. It's uh, what you do to make money. Uh, And these all seem somehow unsatisfactory. Actually, work is quite hard to define. But... Uh, Over the years, through that generations and centuries, there have been various attempts at defining work. I I was reading in a book called Doing God's Business by R. Paul Stevens, who's one of our presenters, by the way, on November 20th for our conference that we're hosting here on work. Uh, And and he cites uh, Richard Higginson's brief history of the theories of work. And uh, Higginson describes uh, work under feudalism this way. He says, you have two cows. Your Lord takes some of the milk. Fascism, you have two cows, the government takes both and hires you to take care of them and sells you the milk. Communism, you have two cows, you must take care of them, but the government takes all the milk. Capitalism, you have two cows, you sell one and buy a bull, your herd multiplies and the economy grows, you sell them and retire on the income. And then business today, you have two cows, You sell three of them to your publicly listed company (laughs) using letters of credit opened by your brother-in-law at the bank, then create a debt equity swap with an associate general offer so that you can all get four cows back with a tax exemption for five cows. The milk rights of the six cows are transferred through an intermediary to a Cayman Island company secretly owned by the majority shareholder who sells the rights to all seven cows back to your listed company. And the annual report says the company owns eight cows with an option on one more. (laughs) A lot of ideas about how work is defined through the ages, but I want to take us back to the Reformation because I think there we find through the eyes of the reformers in the 16th century a pretty good definition that arises really from Scripture on uh, the, uh, our work. What is it? What we'll find there is that work is ministry. Work is ministry. Would you open up your Bible to Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7? You'll find that on page 923 of the Pew Bible. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. And uh, if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me and Let's read God's word aloud together as his people, the priesthood of all believers. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, 
You should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of the wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. The, uh, the text you just read is a complicated text that has uh, bent theologians into all kinds of contortions as they have evaluated in light of church history. Uh, a difficult text to understand really on God's authority in civil government. And it's not actually my intention to wade into those waters, though I think it's important to do so. Today we're focused on uh, what the text says about work in general. And I'd like to engage you then in conversation with one of the reformers this morning, Martin Luther. And I want you to see that Luther gives us an interesting image that helps us to think differently about our work. I'd like to share that image with you and then share four myths about our work uh, with you after that. And, And so first, the image. The image that Luther gives us is that of a mask. Uh, You can think of it as a Halloween mask, if you will. And we notice immediately in this text that Paul, the apostle, as he writes this letter to the Romans, is able to do what you and I are going to do tonight uh, dozens of times over. The doorbell rings, you open the door, and there you see somebody in a mask. And you ask two questions. What are you? It's always better to ask, I've learned, than to try to guess. And who is that? Because they're not the same. Uh, I think you're entitled to a trick if they're not the same, actually. Um, But if you're going to give them a treat, it's because they've dressed up, they've concealed themselves in something rather uh, creative. And the Apostle Paul can make this distinction. He's saying, you can respect authority, you can pay taxes, even when you don't respect the office holder because of the authority of the office. There is a role that has a significance in God's economy that is greater than the one who has the role. The role itself, Luther would say now, is a mask. And so Paul is able to distinguish between the role, emperor, for example, the person in the office, Nero in this case, and an agency behind it all, God. See, we notice in the text that God has instituted this authority. God has appointed these earthly authorities. And it's interesting that Paul can refer to them as ministries. Let me show you that. If you look at verse 4, you see the language that Paul uses here. He says, for it, notice he doesn't say for he, that he would be a reference to Nero, but for it, it's a reference to the office of emperor, for example, is God's Servant for your good. That word servant is the same word uh, that we use for deacons, diakonos. It's the same word that's used throughout the New Testament for minister. It means one who serves, a minister. 
And, and, and likewise, we move down, there's another word uh, translated servants in verse 6. It says, for the authorities are God's servants. That Greek word is liturgos, from which we get the English word liturgy. That's a worship context. So Paul is saying the state, the, the office, whether it be a governor prince or an emperor, these roles bear the authority of God for ministry? That's a rather remarkable claim when you think about the context of this letter. The year is A.D. 57, and the emperor is Nero. These are early days of Nero. His rule is relatively more ordered and peaceful in those days. They're going to get bad fast. Even in these days, Nero is no choir boy. In AD 58, just the next year, there's going to be a tax uprising. And so there is already clearly a resistance within Rome to the oppressions of this particular emperor. And Paul could say, let's be careful. Let's be careful we recognize the authority of the office. The office itself is a mask. And if we can see the mask more than the person who wears it, we might understand something of God's ministry in the world. Work is ministry as a mask. And this image, uh, as I say, comes from uh, Martin Luther. And a few years ago, I was looking for some summer reading. And uh, so I picked up this book called Luther on Vocation. I thought it was Luther on Vacation. <laughs> Written by a Swede uh, named Gustav Wingren. And uh, Gustav says this about Luther. He says, um, instead of coming in uncovered majesty... When he gives a gift to man, humans, God places a mask before his face. He clothes himself in the form of an ordinary man who performs his work on earth. Human beings are to work, quote, and here he's quoting Luther, everyone according to his vocation and office, or I'm calling it role. Through this, Vingren continues, they serve as masks for God, behind which he, God, can conceal himself when he would scatter his gifts. God would be able to create children without making use of human beings, but it pleases him to conceal himself in marriage, in which he lets men and women think that they bring the children into the world. Now Luther, quote, but it is he who does so, hidden behind these masks, you remember when uh, the first child is born in Scripture, uh, Cain, to Eve. Eve proclaims, look at, what the, look at what I have produced with the help of the Lord. She's proud. She's, she has labored. She has worked, and rightly so. God has given, though, this gift to her, and she adds, with the help of the Lord, because it is God who creates. And God could create every human being, as he did Adam, by scooping in the dust and breathing into it. But he doesn't choose to do so. He chooses rather to create through the role of mom and dad. God could choose to answer our prayer for daily bread by making bread appear. I mean, he does so with manna, and he could do that every day of the week. He could just put it on our breakfast tables. But Luther points out he chooses not to do so. He chooses to engage the agency of farmers and millers and bakers to answer his prayer. He does it through work. He does it through these particular roles. 
Uh, Likewise, Luther says, God gives us wool for our sweaters, but the wool is of no use as long as it's on the sheep. He requires our labor uh, to shear the sheep and to spin the wool to make it into uh, something we can wear. The, The point is that God gives us these gifts, but always through these roles. God wants peace in the Roman Empire, so he creates offices through which to do that. Now, the various office holders may be righteous or unrighteous, but God has allowed the role to somehow constrain them to provide some measure of imperfect peace. Every parent learns that what makes you a parent is not the class that you took or the book that you read, it's the kid. When the child is born, the child has a wonderful way of cultivating uh, your parental skill. Uh, She lets you know when she has need and has a particularly piercing way of calling you into action. So that even an unrighteous parent will be constrained by that role in some way to provide benefit to the child and therefore benefit to this creation. God uses these roles. So... Luther could say that God milks the cow by the hand of the milkmaid. Well, that's the image, a mask. A guy is hiding behind this mask. You, you ought not to be too surprised that God hides, that he's discreet. You may have heard of the, the messianic secret. Think of Jesus. I, when I was in high school, I was forced to take a religion class, I think, in my junior year. And I, I thought of myself as a good student. I tried to work hard and... A midterm exam came one day, and there were three questions on it. I, I hated this. There were three essay questions, which makes it a high-stake game, you know. And one of the three questions was this. What is the messianic secret? What is the messianic secret, I thought? You know, I, I thought I'd been to all the classes. I, I'd read as much of the reading as I could read. But for the life of me, I can't remember at all having heard that phrase, messianic secret. I just had no clue what it was. I'm thinking, what could that possibly be? And then in a stroke of genius that just proves the existence of the Holy Spirit, I wrote, why should I tell you? <laughs> you like that? You guys try this. And my teacher gave me half credit for that. <laughs> Best I could have done was a C otherwise. But think about it. Now, I had to go to grad school to figure out what the Messianic secret was, and I I was listening to the answer to that question all four years. And what I heard was, Messianic secret is a fancy word for theologians about the shyness of God. You know, Jesus comes and he does these fantastic things or makes these great statements about who he is, and he says, but that's just between you and me. Don't tell anybody else. And you go, what's up with that? Well, he wants to save the full disclosure of who he is before the cross and the resurrection, but there is a shyness about God. Jesus Christ had walked into this room this morning, and not said anything, not done anything out of the usual, we would have known who he is. person next to you. It's as common as the person that you sit next to on the bus. That's how God came to walk among us. He wants to be known by us. And yet he's very discreet with the way he discloses himself. In the same way, Luther says, he wants to be known and he's making himself known and he's ministering to this creation, but through these masks, through these roles. Now, on to four myths. The first myth myth is this. The myth is that your work is your job. Well, no, that's not quite right. That's not enough. Uh, You may not have a job. You may be a child. You may be retired. You may be unemployed. You may be disabled. But you have work 
And each of us has work because our work comes to us with multiple masks. There are multiple masks, not just a job mask. In 1505, Martin Luther will be called into the ministry. He's in a lightning storm and he's not actually hit by lightning, but he thinks it comes too close for comfort and God must be trying to communicate something to me. So he gives up his freedom to become a monk. 1505, he's called. And everybody knew that monks were called. But in 1523, a different kind of call comes to Luther. A call not in a lightning bolt, but in a fish barrel. You see, by now the Reformation has taken root in Luther's heart. He believes that he's saved not by his works, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. Christ is his righteousness. And uh, so he started to write about this and sent these uh, letters off. And he's got a following. Among the following are some nuns in a convent. And they write him back saying, rescue us. And so he and a friend grab a cart, and it's filled with these empty uh, fish barrels. And in the death of night, they rescue 12 nuns, pack them into these crates, and ride off like the wind. And Luther takes it upon himself to find homes for them. Many of them have families to which they can return, but many do not. And so he tries to get them married off or find places where they'll be okay. And he does so with 11 of them. But he can't find a home for the 12th. And in this, Luther considers a call. And he becomes married to Catherine von Bora. Katie, my lord, he grows to call her. She is my Galatians, a monk getting married. He's free to do so. And so now he has another vocation, another role, that of spouse. He's a husband in addition to a teacher, a professor, and someone in the church. So we have multiple roles, and Luther would describe three orders in his medieval society, a fairly stable social order, very different from ours, but these three orders important to him of the church and the household and government. And the church, he's, everybody's called to the, into the church with the variety of roles, not just the priest. And the household, of course, so you've got uh, sisters and parents and children, grandchildren, all of these familiar relationships. But for Luther, the household was more than just the family relationships. The word for household in Greek is oikonomia, from which we get our English word economy. And it involved all of the provision for the sustenance of the family as well, and what we would call uh, the marketplace as part of the household order. And then uh, finally, government, which is what Paul is addressing here in Romans 13. There are various roles, and we have them all. We are citizens. We are children, each of us. We are members of a Christian community in the church. On top of all these, Luther would add a fourth uh, order, which he calls the common order of Christian love. And that is the duty of all Christians to, in love, reach out and meet the needs of all peoples, whether they relate to them through a special order or not. Paul will wrestle with these overlapping orders when he gives advice to the church in 1 Timothy 5 about widows. The widows who, because of personal tragedy and also social inequalities, found themselves in a very difficult spot. And Paul says, well, the widow has some, there's a call, the church has a call to the widow. And likewise, the widow's uh, parents and grandparents, if she has them, have a call to provide for her. And even the widow herself has a call to remain in prayer on behalf of the church. And so there are these interacting uh, roles and calls. And we, need, we dare not neglect one at the expense of the other. And those of us who spend a lot of time at our jobs need to be very careful about that. I need to remind myself I can't be a faithful pastor 
without being a faithful husband or parent or neighbor or citizen. And I bet you could think similarly about this. John Gottman uh, tells a story of a physician who is a, a, a great pediatrician. He calls him Dr. Rory, very familiar with the staff at work. He runs a pediatric intensive care unit and has garnered the respect of all, but his work weeks so long that he spends very little time at home, does not know the names of his children's friends, does not know the name of the family dog, obviously doesn't live in Seattle, and does, when, when asked where the back door of his house is, has to turn to his wife. Okay, that's a problem. That's a neglect of some of the various roles. So myth number one is that your work is your job. No, it's a ministry in multiple callings. Myth number two, the goal of your work is personal fulfillment. That's a myth. Your work may involve personal fulfillment, may involve financial uh, removal. You could get paid for it. (laughs) But the goal of your work is not personal fulfillment. Paul tells us very clearly what the ministry of a civic authority is, and it's service. That's the core meaning of the word ministry, servant. It's to serve. And in verse 4, we see that this authority is given by God for, to serve your good. That is the case with all rules. All of these masks are masks of God through which the Lord purposes to serve those whom he loves. In Martin Luther's mind, he had very strong opinions about monasteries, and you need not endorse those opinions to appreciate them. Luther left the monastery, as you know, and when he did, in the context of the Reformation, he, he taught that the monasteries had it exactly backwards. Because he says that when someone joined an order, they withdrew themselves from their neighbor. They saw themselves as free with respect to their neighbor. And they bound themselves to God. They saw themselves under a law of obedience, a vow that they took, uh, before God. And Luther says, that's exactly backwards. You see, because there's no law that God gives us. He gives us grace in Jesus Christ. This is the work that you must do. Believe in my son, Jesus Christ. We're free with respect to God because of the gospel, Luther says. But with respect to our neighbor, we are bound by law. Jesus commands us, love your neighbor. He's bound us by law. So this is the, the, the monastic movement in his day got it exactly backwards. The point is that we are, in fact, called to serve, to serve others. That's the purpose of our work. So Jesus is not asking me, George, are you finding your job personally fulfilling? Jesus is not even asking me, George, am I finding your job personally fulfilling? No, Jesus is asking me, George, is the congregation finding your job personally fulfilling? Wow, that is a high standard. And it's the same standard for all of us, whatever our role is. It's the fulfillment of the neighbor whom you serve that that is the metric of your success or faithfulness in your job. There's an SUV commercial that says this SUV is designed for the anticipation of your every need. It must be a lovely car to drive, but I I would suggest to you it's a very dangerous car to drive if it gives the driver the impression that she was made to have her needs satisfied. No, she is made to satisfy the needs of others. That's the goal of work. Three, myth number three, uh, your work should imitate Jesus' work. 
That's a myth? Luther would say so. Your work should not imitate Jesus' work. Your mask and Jesus' mask are unique. First of all, if you were to imitate Jesus, then there would only be one vocation in life, and that's to be an itinerant preacher. Come on, how long would we live? Luther says, no, you're not called to be an itinerant preacher. That was Jesus' call. But secondly, notice this. It's those who would strive most to imitate Jesus or anybody that they looked up to who are least likely to actually live like Jesus. Why do I say that? I say that because imitation centers us in ourself. We look at somebody who has a standard of holiness and we say, I want to be like that person. I want to acquire for myself the holy lifestyle that they have. doesn't matter if it's a saint or Jesus. Luther says, that makes you the center. And, and, and Jesus is one who served with love and freedom and joy and spontaneous beauty. You think about these flowers here, this one given by grandchildren and parents in their vocation. This one given by two lovers who have been married 69 years in marriage. Neither of them said, geez, we really ought to give flowers today, uh, present them. No, it's a sign of love. It's not a sign of the law or duty or obligation. But that's what imitation will do to you. The one who's really free to be most like Jesus is the one who lets Jesus do his job for us. Jesus has a vocation, and that's to be the Savior of the world. It's to die for our sins. It's to be our righteousness, to be our righteousness, so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness, not our lame attempts to be holy in our own selves. This is why when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, the teacher in Israel, and Nicodemus says, Jesus, we know you must be a good teacher. And so he's sidling up next to him to get some teaching advice on how Nicodemus could be as good a teacher as Jesus is. Jesus cuts the conversation off right there. He goes, look, Nicodemus, I got no teaching advice for you. I want you to be saved. I want you to be born again. I've got a ministry to do in your life. And if I can do the ministry that I'm called to do in your life, Jesus says, then you can be free to, to carry out the ministry that God has for you in the world. So, so our work is not to imitate Jesus' work. It's to claim its own distinctive quality by virtue of the, the place, the roles that God has given us, not Jesus, and to be free to do so because Jesus has done for us what only Jesus is called to do. Finally, myth number four. You will hear a supernatural call to your work. And oh, we want this. So many people come to the pastor and ask, how can I know what God is calling me to do? I believe that all of us are called, but I just haven't seen the burning bush. I just haven't heard the audible voice. The angels haven't broken out in song over my head yet, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And it's just all this mundane stuff. And that's exactly the point. Luther says, what calls you to ministry, what calls you to work, is your neighbor's need and the tools in your tool room. The resources that you have to serve your neighbor when she's hurting are all that you need to hear God's call on your life. I read to you one more time from the words of Luther. Luther says, if you're a craftsman, you will find the Bible placed in your workshop, in your hands, in your heart. It teaches and preaches you how you ought to treat your neighbor. Only look at your tools. Your needle, your thimble, your beer barrel, your articles of trade, your scales, your measures, and you will find this saying written on them. You will not be able to look anywhere where it does not strike your eyes. 
None of the things with which you deal daily are too trifling to tell you this incessantly if you are but willing to hear it. And there's no lack of such preaching, for you have as many preachers as there are transactions, commodities, tools, and other implements in your house and estate. And they shout this to your face. My dear, use me toward your neighbor as you would want him to act toward you with that which is his. You hear God's call through the needs of people around you. That's true personally. That's true corporately. Every great corporation exists because it found a need it could meet. And it will grow into adjacencies to its core mission by identifying further needs that it is uniquely equipped to meet. So we look to our needs. This is what Christians have always done. Christians have always been a people who have raced into need. There are two great epidemics in Rome. In 165 A.D., during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, probably smallpox, a quarter to a third of the Roman Empire died. Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, included. And then another one that comes in 251. And at the height of this second epidemic, which may have been measles, 5,000 people were dying every day in the city of Rome alone. And Rodney Stark, when he was a professor here at the U, wrote that, This crisis was one of the greatest opportunities for the church in its entire history. It was this crisis that allowed the church to explode in growth. And you'd say, how is that possible when people are dying like this? Well, it's because loved ones who weren't Christians were terrified. And they left their pagan relatives to die in the home that's abandoned or by the side of the road. Christians rushed into places of disease. Christians called by human need, by the love of Jesus Christ, came to lay hold of those who were sick and dying. And as it turns out, without the benefit of modern medicine, just water and food was enough to increase mortality rates pretty dramatically. The people who survived were the people who had Christians at their bedside. And the church exploded because of these two plagues. And yet it took love. I just want to read to you. From uh, 260, Dionysus, on on Easter Sunday, writes this letter. Most of our brother Christians show unbounded love and, and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. You and I are called to a community that Jesus sends out into the world every single day in a variety of different roles to do the work behind which he hides and in which he serves the world. Someone said that Christians are to the world like the soul is to the body. God is active in our midst. He's active through you and through me, even in the most simple and mundane of tasks. You are a royal priesthood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give thanks. We give thanks to the witness of those who came before us, who inspire us by their example of laying down their lives and pouring them out in service to others. 
We give thanks for the ministry and work of Jesus Christ in our lives who can stop us trying to cobble together our being by our own means and righteousness to secure our lives, but who has secured us in your love that we might be free to look outward towards our neighbors, to listen to their needs and to hold them in love and to serve them just as you have served us. We thank you for this gift and we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to make it all your work. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.